This is an ABC podcast. Ekumoa omo talohani and good morning. I'm your host, Eggy Dubol, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Rwandri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Today on the show, what does the future of tourism in Papua New Guinea look like after its civil unrest and future of the Solomon Islands National Institute of Sport, known locally as SINIS? And what does the future hold for the indigenous of Aotearoa after governments plan to redefine its founding document, Te Tiriti o Waitangi? Well, as you can see, it's a recurring theme for our stories today. It's all about the future. If you want to find out more, simply stay tuned. I'm Eggy Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, it was opened in a blaze of glory. Solomon Islands National Institute of Sport, known locally as Sinus, was set to change the future of athletes from the Happy Isles. But in the aftermath of last year's Pacific Games, a cloud of uncertainty hangs over its future and its 70 local staff. Solomon Islands reporter Chris Narita Almanu Leong has the story. Klansman Fugui's bronze medal lift in last year's Pacific Games all comes to a decision he made three years ago. The 21-year-old Solomon Islander says it's more than just lifting weights. It was about his future. Start training as weightlifting, but not really like uh, comply to it, I mean, consistently. But uh, in 2021, uh, I trained as a powerlifting. Powerlifting helped me as a person. It, uh, it created uh, a, a, a space for me between, I mean, like, I was involving in so much things that, uh, like drugs, involved in those activity that can cause a lot of um, criminal activities in country. The transition for Fugui was helped by a change in training venue. Once forced to train at Honiara's multi-purpose centre, an old, dusty, rundown facility that used to be the country's only high-performance centre. Everything changed when Solomon Islands National Institute of Sports or CINIS came along. Fugui says it helped him take out the powerlifting bronze in the 74kg category at the Games and helped change his life. The difference between CINIS and the uh, multi-purpose, um, the place where I used to be, just like a uh, multi-purpose, uh, the environment was not really good and also it has the weights only that uh, athletes that can, I mean, the same weights, but the difference is environment there and environment here in CINIS. Sinis has helped transform local athletes like Fugui into competitive athletes, helping them smash goals and personal bests. It also helped propel Solomon Islands to seventh place in last year's Pacific Games, the best ever performance in the country's Pacific Games history, winning 12 gold medals and a total of 80 medals, something administrators say can be attributed to Sinis. Now, to find out how this happened, first, let's go back in time. In November 2021, Prime Minister Manasseh Songavare officially opened CINIS, calling it the Centre of Excellence for Sport Development in the country. With Solomon Islands government funding of 22.6 million Solomon dollars, or about 4 million in Australian dollars, the institute started off with 30 staff. The Prime Minister made a number of promises. One, to make sure the legacy of CINIS lives on. It is your institute, it is your home, use it. 
12, sharpen your skills for 2023 so you can chance, celebrate, and unite. But three years on to today, a cloud of uncertainty hangs over the High Performance Center and its now 70 local staff. Jimmy Luitolo works as a coach developer at Cine. First time they asked staff, are you still working? They even asked me to, are you going somewhere? Why do you ask that? If they say that this place is closed. I also feel a bit pity for them too. Then I will re- reply them. Then I ask, how if this place is closed? Then will you? That's what we worry about. If, if this place is closed, we, we're not going to have to go to the gym. He sees himself as a pioneer, being one of the very first staff from the 30. Because when we enter this uh, building or this facility, there's nothing, even no furniture. Uh, our ED knows that around our shop. We are laid down with laptops on the floor, <laughs> pulling in uh, tables and stuff, and even the gym as well, and the equipment. We try to set them up without knowledge of putting them up and searching through the uh, internet for how to plug them, bring them back to the suppliers in Australia. How can we mount this stuff? It's a little bit funny. The ABC understands that contracts of the remaining 70 staff at Sinis lapse on February 2nd. Yet employees are still to receive any direction from the government-backed National Hosting Authority on whether or not they'll still be working. The National Sporting Council is the body mandated to inherit CINIS with the other sporting facilities three months after the November Pacific Games. Joe Sika is its chairman and addressed the concerns in a recent media release. This will bring to fruition the promises of the Honourable Prime Minister in speeches and in Parliament that all the sports facilities will be transferred to the NSC to manage on behalf of the government. In the meantime, we are working to ensure that everything and everyone is in place for us to open up to the public. He says the Sports Council is working with the hosting authority for the transfer of all 11 national sports facilities before the end of March. But it's still unclear whether CINIS is part of those 11 facilities. Clarifications sorted by the ABC to the CEO of the Sports Council, Alison Birchall, were redirected to the Sporting Council Board. The Sogavara government is in caretaker mode ahead of the April national election. But sources within the Home Affairs Ministry, which houses the National Sporting Council, say there's simply no budget allocation for CINES and that the final decision remains between the hosting authority and the Sporting Council. Despite this uncertainty, powerlifter Fugui's dreams remain clear. I have a long-term goal, like in terms of sport powerlifting, to be the influencer of uh, the sport in Solomon Island and also achieving a gold medal for Solomon Island in the next Pacific Games. And that is Solomon Island's powerlifter, Klinsman Fugui, ending that report from ABC's Chris Narita Almanuleong in Honiara. Now to Papua New Guinea's Tourism Authority, who wants a dedicated police squad for the sector following deadly riots this month. While civil unrest in the country has passed, PNG Tourism Promotion Authority CEO Eric Mosman Uvovo says the scar on PNG's public image is lasting. We've never anticipated such thing like this to, to happen. Really painted a bad picture on, on PNG generally. But PNG is recovered, especially in Port Moresby. Do you expect that that event will affect tourism numbers for 2024? Maybe, given the fact that 
what has happened on January 10 has uh, received international attention. But uh, we've done a lot of work in 2022, 23, leading up to 24, and we were really looking forward to 2024 as a year of uh, implementation and as the year that we will bounce back from the impact of COVID-19. But I think the event, event that unfolded in January 10, this pushed us back a bit. That is a big challenge. Uh, but we've done, we've been doing our best. And from this, it has also positioned us to rethink in our strategy. To We have a lot of things in our sleeve to implement. Uh, one of the key, I think, reform that will be implemented is the review of the Tourism Act. And uh, we've been focused on doing that. And uh, I think one of the key programs that we've also looked into is how we can work with uh, law enforcement agencies like uh, the police to work with us and uh, come up with the concept of tourism police, uh, especially uh, looking into e-products like uh, Kokoda uh, and uh, adventure products like Mount William and cultural products like Goroka Show, Agen Show. Just tell me a little bit more about the tourism police. What would that be? What would that entail? I think that's a concept that we had in Rada for a long time. And... Um, we're putting together a proposal. What is the concept, I guess? Does it involve like a dedicated police squad that will attend tourist areas or big events like the Garoka show? Yeah, yeah, something like that. That's what we're looking at. Uh, the most, they'll, they'll provide policing at the same time, knowing how to do endal tourists, doing uh, tours. Uh, and I've mentioned to the uh, police minister that uh, it's about time we have those police with those specific skills. So they can be the main people giving the security to our people at the same time, telling our visitors of the products, whatever we have, so they understand the importance of the role they play. So they'll be trained a bit differently, and that's what we've been discussing. Now, speaking with um, another tourism operator recently, we've heard allegations about price gouging with one hotel in Mount Hagen uh, quoting 3,500 kina for a room for a single night, and that was during the Hagen show. Um, do you think that is an issue? Is that something that's on your radar? Yes, that's something we realised that uh, not only Hagen Show, but also in Goroka and others that during the festive seasons, uh, that we have a serious accommodation issues. There is absolutely shortage of rooms and accommodation for number of guests, both international and local, coming into those various places like Hagen or Goroka when the household events. In terms of these uh, very, very high prices for hotel rooms at, at peak seasons, are there any caps or regulations on what uh, hotels can charge or is it perfectly reasonable for them to charge that price if people are willing to pay for it? I think it's a matter of demand and supply situation. Uh, sometimes fry prices can be very unreasonable because uh, the demand is so high. But at the moment, we do not have the regulatory power to control that. That's why we are reviewing some of our, our policy, our national tourism policy, and we are also reviewing our legislation this year. So we might not really go and uh, control prices, but to see whether those hotels that provide accommodations are meeting up to standards and uh, prices that they charge are up to the standard of accommodation that they provide. But as I've said earlier on, you know, it's the market forces that this demands the, the pricing. Sometimes those pricing are very uh, extraordinary. Uh, and I tend to question it to myself. But then again, uh, you don't have the type of hotels that 
Iron Groka and, and Mount Hagen. There's you have only the Coral Sea Hotels that provide the upmarket. There's another one or two that provides the same, but I think the issue for me goes down to capacity. They see that they have the capacity and the demand is there and they can charge that price at that time. And I've tried to talk to them for them to understand that, you know, be reasonable, but then the demand is so high that they go up to that level. And Mr. Yvova, just to wrap up, um, what are you looking forward to this year, 2024, in terms of tourism in Papua New Guinea? Are there any major events on the horizon? We have a lot of things in our sleeve to implement. Uh, one of the key, I think, reform that will be implemented is the review of the Tourism Act. Uh, the cruise tourism sector was really picked up to as well. So we're looking forward to work with uh, the cruise tourism operators, uh, Carnival Australia and others, to uh, see we, where we can expand. And that is PNG Tourism Promotion Authority CEO Eric Mossman Vovo speaking with Marion Farm. Pacific Beat. It's an event etched in infamy. The atomic bombing of Japan in 1945 claimed lives of more than 100,000 people, bringing a swift end to the Second World War. What's a lesser known fact is that it was the tiny Pacific island of Tinian which provided the runway for the two planes that delivered the most devastating blasts in human history. Now the US Air Force is bringing that same airfield back to life. And Tinian locals worry history could one day repeat itself. Carl Evans has a story. In August of 1945, a plane carrying an atomic bomb that would be dropped on Japan that morning rolled down a runway in the northern Marianas. Another followed three days later, taking off from the very same airfield in Tinian. Since the late 60s, students from Hiroshima and Nagasaki would come to Tinian on the anniversary of those two events. And we would join hands with with our children and we would go up to the bomb pit sites and we pray and we do vigil, candlelight vigil and pray for world peace, for the elimination of weapons of mass destruction. And this was only interrupted by COVID. And prior to that, a super typhoon that decimated our island. Deborah Fleming lives in Tinian and is a founding member of the Tinian Women's Association. We're, we're, we're just a handful of island people, not very sophisticated, and so, you know, peace-loving. And, and so we never expected that this would escalate to the way it is today. In December, the US Air Force confirmed plans to recommission the airfield that launched those infamous missions as part of a major military redevelopment of the island. The project will help the military better disperse aircraft across the Indo-Pacific, but Deborah fears it could one day put Tinian in danger. I'm aware of the situation in, in our area, you know, uh, North Korea threat and all of that, not just Guam. Now with the build, you know, build up of the divert airfield and, you know, I know that uh, like Guam, we too, our, our home has become a target. Potentially, with all this uh, turmoil going on in, in the Pacific region, right? It's a fear that's grown louder among locals in recent times, as geopolitical tensions in the region heighten. Issa Ariola is an anthropologist and assistant professor at Concordia University who lives in Saipan. She also chairs a community advocacy group tasked with researching and raising awareness around militarisation in the Marianas. 
She says there's many questions about the project that the military is yet to answer. One of the things that I just want to point out right away is that the language that we're using here is really important because the work that's being done on Tinian right now by the military is being called Tinian Divert Infrastructure Improvements. And so it's being couched in this kind of rhetoric of, an, of infrastructural improvements on the airport, et cetera. But what we're seeing is in a really intense like remilitarization, reusing of the same runway that they did back in World War II, right? And we're finding ourselves asking that same question of what is our role? How are, how are we being used in this kind of overall project that's happening here, right? Really, it's a base, right? So, I mean, I think that's part of the language that we need to be transparent about is building this, this essentially this divert backup base, right? In case something, um, in case Anderson Air Force Base is quote-unquote compromised during an attack, right? It's also not entirely clear what the actual threat is because we see a lot of this in the media about, you know, there's there's a lot of scary words being thrown out there um, about China, right? And so I, I think it, it, this is also an important question that's coming up is can we put their spending in context? What is actually the level of threat that we're experiencing? Does it match the level of quote-unquote buildup that we're seeing, right? And then what are the long-term effects of that buildup? There's also questions around the environmental impact of the project. Among the plans is a major pipeline to run from the seaport to the airport, which will run directly over a potable water source. Originally, the plan was to have fuel trucks bring fuel back and forth from those two points, and they've since changed their mind in 2019 and decided to build a pipeline. Now, you know, Tinian's a, a relatively small island. What is their plan to mitigate if the pipeline bursts, for example? What about seismic activity? How will this stuff be cleaned up, right? So there's some really um, kind of critical questions that I think have been left unanswered from the environmental perspective um, in the EISs that have come out related to the divert. But many in the Northern Marianas support the project, particularly in the business community. Last year, the government made the decision to pivot away from Chinese tourism to shore up national security. However, it's had dire consequences on the tourism sector, with arrivals down close to 60% since the pandemic. As a result, the nation now looks to the military more than ever for support. So now what you're seeing in the local news is that the governor is actually having to go back and say, well, we actually need that Chinese tourism boost, right? We can't actually turn away from it in the way that we had wanted to, to match up with the kind of security goals of the U.S. So I think what's important there is that you're seeing the way that militarism is transforming, you know, the economic fabric of our community. But ultimately, ESA fears it's Tinian's Indigenous people who could bear the long-term cost of this project. These are our ancestral lands. This is where our ancestors are from, where we were born and raised. We have a very deep connection to this place, right? And the land is really central to our identity. And so when these things are used for, for training or testing or, or really, you know, local voices are completely disregarded in the process, um, that's, that's a hit to Indigenous sovereignty. And it will continue to be, you know. There's another important question about... You know, what are these investments in war doing to investments in our community? You know, if we keep investing in war, if we keep investing in violence or on behalf of the U.S., let's say, we're investing away from our people's future, away from the future of our ancestral lands. And and I think these are these are the concerns that are bubbling up.
And that is Issa Ariola, anthropologist and assistant professor at Concordia University, ending that report by Carl Evans. Stay tuned because up next shortly, Carl will be with us, bringing us our news wrap for today. Newsroom 40. Hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijin Footy Stars. Nijin Footy. Nijin Footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubois, and it is that time where we head around the region. What is the latest? That's brought to you by our producer, Carl Evans. What's on our news wrap this morning? But I'd like to say good morning. Happy Monday. (laughs) Yeah. If if there is such a thing. (laughs) Absolutely. As long as you had a good weekend, though. I did. Very much so. Nice. Good to hear. Okay. First story, definitely. Tuvalu's leader, Prime Minister Carl Sianatano, has actually lost his seat in the country's national election over the weekend. Gosh. Yeah, that's right. So it appears Tuvalu will have a new Prime Minister after Mr. Natano failed to hold on to his seat uh, on the main island of uh, Funafuti. As for who that new PM will be, we still don't yet know. So lawmakers are expected to meet next week to vote in a new Prime Minister, um, as is custom. Uh, Australia's Foreign Minister Foreign Minister Penny Wong, she's already congratulated the country on holding a successful election over the weekend and says she looks forward to working with a new government. Uh, as we do, as we know, the, the two countries, Australia and Tuvalu, did sign that far-reaching deal uh, a little while ago that gives Canberra a say in Tuvalu's defence type in exchange for those residency guarantees. Um, but more interestingly, however, uh, is that Mr. Natano, the former PM, was pro-Taiwan and had pledged to remain a close diplomatic ally of the nation. Um, it's going to be interesting to see, I guess, what impact that had on the election and uh, and what if that's going to remain the case uh, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's head to uh, calls to remove a giant fishing vessel uh, lying on its side in Apia before it becomes an environmental threat. Goodness, what's happening there? Yeah, that's right. So the Samoa Global Shipping Services agent uh, is calling for its quick removal, claiming uh, it's not only an eyesore for tourism, but it could become an environmental disaster if, in fact, it does start to leak oil. So this was reported by the Samoa Observer and comes after the ship uh, um, ran aground after high tides. High, after high tides and waves capsized the boat last week, uh, twelve people were sleeping on board at the time, and luckily none of them were injured uh, miraculously. Um, anyway, but these calls they come from the chief executive of the Samoa Global F- uh, Shipping Service. Um, they man the schedules of cruise ships coming into the region. Uh, she says it's an eyesore for tourists uh, and is a bad look for Samoa as it prepares uh, for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting later on this year. But uh, not only that, the longer it remains in place, uh, the longer of a, of a chance of a, you know something like an oil leak or something that could you know potentially damage the ocean. Absolutely. Well, I'm wondering, has the government made plans to move the ship though? Yeah, so Samoa's transport minister has been monitoring the boat and they are currently awaiting a report from the insurance company of the owner of the vessel. Uh, There's not yet a timeline of uh, when the insurance company will carry out that inspection, so it appears for now it's just going to remain suspended uh, in space. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Okay, well, let's hope they clear it up sooner than later. Now, this one, a new feature film is in the works in the PNG, uh, which is set to address domestic violence and intergenerational trauma. This looks uh, really interesting. Uh, yeah, look, that, that's definitely the word for it, Aggie. It's called uh, Wounded Warriors, and it was shot in uh, Makarupo Village in PNG Central Province and will air on International Women's Day in March. So it tells the story of a young father named Laka who is determined to break free from the cycle of violence which has surrounded his family uh, by embarking on a journey of healing and redemption. Uh, It explores the themes of generational trauma, colonialism, uh, cultural conflict uh, and hopes to make a real impact um, in combating that long-term issue. Absolutely, but it'd be good to know, is it a local cast? It is, yeah. So most of the cast are actually all first-time actors, uh, many of whom applied for their roles uh, on Facebook where the casting call went out. Uh, The main character is played by a man named uh, Numa Numa Jr., who is a solo singer uh, from the local area. The director, meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, Richard Sargent, he's from that same village also, but he's he's now currently based uh, in Australia. So, yeah, very strong local flavour and, um, yeah, yeah. In some ways, shades shades of the great Once Were Warriors film that came out probably 30 years ago now. Goodness, that makes me even more older. But I mean, good. <laughs> sounds like a heavy but very uplifting um, movie. So I look forward to, to catching that too. But thank you very much, Kyle, for always bringing us our news rep here on Pacific Beat. Thank you, Aggie. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now to New Zealand politics, where a national hui, or meeting, saw more than 10,000 people gather at the Tūranga Waiwai Marae recently in response to calls of unity, where New Zealand Coalition Government's ACT Party want to redefine the principles of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, or Treaty of Waitangi, which could have deep impacts on Māori. So joining us live from Aotearoa, New Zealand, to discuss this matter is Te Pāti Māori co-leader Debbie Ngārewa Packer. With that, I say morena, Debbie. Morena. Oh, thank you again for joining us this morning. Well, you know, firstly, again, it's been a week uh, since this hui or this meeting. What was your overall feel of it? Did you feel like it was a positive move in the right direction? Oh, look, I, I think it absolutely uh, is a great move and the right decision uh, as far as the leaders are mobilising uh, in reaction to what has been a a government that 83% of Māori didn't, and Pacifica didn't um, support. So what we've seen in our view is very anti-Māori policies and proposals. So, you know, the reaction of coming together in unity and being able to come up with the solutions, being able to mobilise tens of thousands. We had another event in the weekend at Ratana with thousands of people. It's really important because, again, you know, when the essence of who you are is being challenged, there's all sorts of ways you can react. And Māori are well known, as many Pacifica are. When we're under threat, the best thing we do is unite and then come up with constructive ways of um, dealing with what is seen as attack on Māori. Yeah, uh, with that leaked document that has come across uh, our, our, our shores here, shows the government's intentions in some way to erase certain parts or even the principles of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. I mean, what is it specifically in that document that alarmed you? Oh, every part of it. I think, you know, <laughs> I think that the fact that uh, David Seymour has a view that Māori ceded sovereignty. Uh, the fact that he doesn't recognise Indigenous rights in any way or form, that we existed pre-colonisation. And the unique position in Aotearoa is that we were not, uh, there was no conquest here. 
The treatise, in fact, shows the goodwill stretched from our ancestors to those who are arriving and and indeed, in a partnership sense, you look after your people and we will self-determine. Uh, that's philosophically the, the opposition that the rest of us have with, again, this um, party that got less than 10%. And so I think when you look at that, there is a real um, challenge on in the growth of Aotearoa. And the, if you look behind the purpose of it, what we really have is a government who is full of uh, politicians who represent shareholders. And the shareholders want status quo. They want to hold on to their power. They're the 2% who are more than 50% of the wealth in Aotearoa. Sounds very familiar for most of us Indigenous people. So it is a it is as much as a um, push for economic power um, than it is for anything else as well. So we've got to see it for what it is and respond um, in the most unified way that we can as Māori. Yeah, and you have had, you've said some comments, of course, saying that the current New Zealand government is very anti-Māori. Uh, you even alluded to them being quite typical white supremacists. I mean, do you stand by those comments and why? We've absolutely seen traits um, that we have seen. I'm um, from ancestors who survived Parihaka. We've seen the way that colonisation applies its supremacism. It will take away our language. We've got a government that is now uh, withdrawing uh, the language on, on government departments, for goodness sake, its commitment to te reo Māori, its commitment to its Indigenous people, it's taken away the Māori Health Authority, which was a response to the fact that Māori died seven to ten years earlier. It's bringing in more smoking, taking away smoking legislation. All these are about our well-being, our ability to survive and thrive. These are traits that are typical and and until you know, you cannot soften it. You can't sit there and say it's just a little racist, it's just a little supremacism. It is absolutely an, an approach to have a one race um, applied in Aotearoa, which in 2024 is the most humiliating thing to see this um, new Prime Minister who's had one term before this allow. So, and again, the, when we go back to the treaty and the principles, we cannot fathom why the Prime Minister of all the horse trading they did for the coalition decided that Māori and Māori, um, for 50 years that we've been and we're working in the courts to have our, our rights recognised, that Māori were the most expendable in his coalition um, horse trading. So there is a real uh, cultural battle going on. I do want to say, though, that it is not a Māori versus um, Pākehā thing going on because there's just as many tangata tariti, just as many non-Māori that are standing um, up for the Indigenous peoples of Aotearoa. So it's going to be a bit of a long haul three years, assuming that the coalition lasts that long, but we're up for it. And there's just some amazing tenacity um, that's been shown. We've had a movement that's growing. We're now up at Waitangi this week. There'll be tens of thousands there again. So um, the pushback is exactly what you would expect to see in Aotearoa, and I guess this is a part of our um, assertion of our, our growth. We were the last of the islands to be colonised, and, and I guess this was going to happen sooner or later, sadly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before I do get to um, speaking on Waitangi, I would like to ask, though, do, do you think it's maybe just a little bit premature to judge the new government on its commitment to the treaty, given it said it would not support um, ACT Party's leader, David Seymour's bill, beyond its first reading in Parliament, though? I think um, that would probably be a really good question if they, the fact that, again, we have these politicians who have got less than 10% if they didn't trade off, 
the question that most of us have to ask is, what was it that you thought and why was it that you thought you could trade off any um, changes or discussions about the principles and tetiriti without including tangata whenua? What is it that 83% of Māori didn't vote for you? You don't have a mandate um, to do that for Māori. Why was it of all the things you agreed to, why waste taxpayers' money to get it to select committee in the first place? Why create the drama? Why, with everything we've got going of cost of living, homelessness, displacement, heightened poverty, why did this Prime Minister and this government believe that it was okay to horse trade with Māori rights and interests? And I guess that's the real critical critical issue. We're only here because National thought that we were expendable, and that's a sad state of um, our relationship with them. Hmm. If you just tuned in, we are speaking to Te Pāti Māori co-leader uh, Debbie Ngārewa Pekka on the recent Hawaiian meetings just to discuss the critical issues surrounding these possible changes to the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, Interesting enough, you said earlier the PM, uh, well, the Prime Minister was actually not present at the first Hui, and I know that uh, ACT Party leader David Seymour was no show at the Ratana celebration. So, wondering, how does this actually speak of them as leaders of the country? That's a really good question because what we are hearing um, is that, you know, both are saying, particularly David Seymour is saying, look, we need to have a, a, a discussion. Nope, have we lost DB? But interestingly. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Have I got you back? <laughs> You're there. Oh, sorry. Is that okay now? Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, so we have, um, interestingly enough, David Seymour is making comments that, you know, we're a mature enough country. We should be having this discussion. We're up for it. But actually, he's not wanting to discuss it with Māori. Tens of thousands of Māori are turning up for him to discuss it, and he's not. What he's wanting to do is continue to have the discussion from his privileged point of view, which is actually, you know, we we don't need to be recognising Māori and in their Indigenous rights, um, that they were here before colonisation. And again, if he didn't have such a strong capitalist view of um, making sure that, you know, the, that everyone can just live here in harmony, uh, well, it's not. He wants to live here and usurp the rights of mana whenua and the recognition of hapu and the recognition of us as Indigenous peoples. So if there was genuinely um, intent from these leaders, I will say that, um, to be fair, the Prime Minister turned up to Ratana um, and got told, uh, yeah, where thousands of people got told very directly exactly what Māori think of them um, and their relationship and their commitment to us, particularly in respect to uh, Te Tiriti. But David Seymour has just been a complete no-show. So he's uh, he's talking about us without us. Mm. About us. It's just shocking. Yeah, uh, but there has been some word that he will show up to Waitangi Day, and I know that's coming up on February the 6th. Look, very much a significant day for the country. Are you expecting maybe some sort of tension? What would you like to happen? Um, what I would like to happen is they all <laughs> stop attacking Māori and focus on what the real issues are, which is heightened poverty, displacement, and um, extreme homelessness in Aotearoa. But the, um, I, I guess there will be tension. There's always a degree of tension um, because it's almost like an opportunity to get up there, um, talk about wakaputanga, which existed before Te Tiriti and Te Tiriti, but also um, it's like a performance appraisal week where the Crown gets to say it's honouring, it's degree of honouring Te Tiriti. Uh, at the moment, we've got a government that's been in since October, which has got absolutely no intent of not only honouring it, but um, I guess 
governing in the best interests of Māori as well. So I do expect some tension, but I will say that the way that Māori have reacted, if, this, if the shoe was on the other foot, we would not have the calm reaction that we feel in Aotearoa. For every attack they've given to Māori, we've just grown stronger and unified. There is a whole rollout of a kaupapa called Tui Tūte Tiriti, and that's got some activation that's been going on in a really quiet, calm way. So, yeah, I do um, expect some natural tension, and I do think that there'll be um, lots of drama, lots of kōrero, but most importantly, lo- lots of show of Indigenous unity, and I think that's a great thing for the world to see right now with everything going on. Absolutely, Debbie. It's nothing I know you can't handle. Look, we just appreciate your time oh, this morning, time. As, as always. Ngā mihi. Appreciate it. That is the party Māori co-leader. Uh, back in Aotearoa, Debbie Ngārewa Packer here on Pacific Beat. Well, this year in October, Samoa will make history, being the first small island developing state from the Pacific, to host the Commonwealth Heads of Government Meeting, or CHOGM. One of its attendees will be the British High Commissioner to Australia and Head of Oceania Network, Vicky Trudell, alongside His Majesty King Charles III. She shared with me why UK's diplomatic presence across the Pacific matters. Because what is unique about the Commonwealth principles of freedom of expression, the rule of law. What are the themes and issues of common interest to these countries where they find economic opportunity are are really pressing issues and some of these nations are vulnerable. I'm wondering as you yourself, the role you hold, British High Commissioner to Australia, you are heading to Samoa. Do you already know quite a bit about the Pacific nation itself? How close are you with Samoa? I know Samoa very well. I'm also head of our Oceania network. So I have that family to look after and the importance of how we work together particularly on the issue of the Pacific and how we listen to the voice of the Pacific. Whatever we do in the region has to be informed and guided by what these Pacific nations themselves want and where they see Britain can help or support. I spent long weekends to enjoy all that um, Samoa had to offer visiting both islands and uh, enjoying local culture and, and food. So I, I'd like to think I know Samoa uh, pretty well, although it is sadly 10 years ago since I was last there. One of the issues that faces not just Samoa, but the whole of the Pacific region is climate change. Where do you think the leaders will stand or where would you like the leaders to stand in terms of aid or financial aid towards the Pacific and what they're facing? Well, the key theme of Prime Minister Fiamme's Chogham is going to be resilience, within which climate impacts and how it affects all of societies, I know is a priority. But speaking from my personal experience, when I have traveled to Pacific Islands, what people want to see is action. Some of these amazing island nations and people will not have their landmass, will not have clean water because of rising sea levels. Uh, They have heard the words but they want people to walk the talk. 
the great challenge for nations how to access those funds, the bureaucracy that is attached to drawing down the funding for things like mitigation and adaptation, is how do we deliver the transformational change Vicky, with all due respect, uh, some would say the small island nation again of Samoa is taking on such a big risk with having this whole chogum held there in a nation that is fighting climate change. Was it necessary to have it in Samoa? Well, this is what Prime Minister Fiame wanted, probably because she wanted people to come and see and understand. We can talk about this in New York or London or Paris, but until you visit and you see and you interact, you can't really appreciate it. She is a very principled woman. Why else would she have travelled all the way from Samoa to Kigali in Rwanda to make the bid to host Chogum. She did this because she saw value. The rule of law, democracy, and its values truly matter to her. Um, and yes, Samoa does not have a huge population. Public service, therefore, is proportionate to the scale of that population. But I do remember Samoa hosted the small island developing states meeting, but every civil servant turned Uh, put their shoulder to delivering a fantastic conference. It will be done in the Samoan way. Uh, Delegations will be asked to think about the size of their delegations, to embrace Samoan hospitality in the way that it will be delivered. This will be a uniquely Samoan experience, and I think all the better for it. I believe what a significant part of history that is going to be made when you guys get together. What's also significant, the fact, as you said, monarchies will be there. King Charles will also be there too? Uh, Yes, he will, because he is the head of the Commonwealth. So he doesn't just come as the king of the United Kingdom. He comes as the head of the Commonwealth, because that's what the Commonwealth nations decided they wanted that continuity. So what does what does that actually mean for our Pacific to have UK's like diplomatic presence across the Pacific? Geopolitics, the interest into the Pacific has been very, I suppose, has increased exponentially in the last few years. US, China, Taiwan having their hands in our backyard. But but what does it mean for UK's presence across the Pacific? We have a long history in this part of the world. If I'm frank and honest, and I think we should be, we rather took our eye off and our engagement uh, in this region. Uh, For example, we closed our high commissions in Tonga and Vanuatu. And about, I would say about six years ago, we realized that that was a strategic mistake because these countries and our relationships do matter to us. And to reestablish or to establish a resident high commission with a high commissioner to Samoa in its own right, not just being relationship that we have had, but how do we modernize it and make it relevant? They want, you can't do that if you're not there. Mm. So, you know, if you're not in a place, you can't feel it, sense it, understand what people actually want uh, to engage with the government of the day, uh, the ministers of the day, Um, and how we work 
together. Uh, I saw the statement on the Chogham website. It talks about how this leaders meeting can actually empower the Commonwealth's 1.5 billion young people to build a more peaceful, sustainable future. How does that look practically? Well, number one, we need to hear the voice of the young people of the part they feel they should be playing. What are their views? What are the issues? And some of that too is, you know, the young entrepreneurs to be able to create sustainable businesses. Um, How do we support them? How do they get the funding and finance? Um, How do they lobby and influence their own governments and be taken seriously? So if you have a gathering of all the heads of government in Apia, they need to listen to the voice of their own youth. And when they return, there will be in the statement at the end of it, what every head of government will do. It's all well and good meeting and talking. How do we translate what we have committed to, to real action and real impact? How do we fund it? How do we develop policies and programs in our own countries? And how do we collectively influence the global architecture and institutions that exist that should equally be helping to drive this? And that is the British High Commissioner to Australia, Vicky Trudell. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasi Novonraiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. Like Bell International, we've got access in Australia to all the archives and, and records such as plantation owners' records and shipping records. We try to match them with some of the oral stories from elders in the Australian South Sea Islander communities. Tune in to Sisters Let's Talk Thursday mornings at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. If you need to find any of our stories, you can head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. But I'll be back same time tomorrow, 6am PNG time. Remember, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. And coming up after that, it's Nisha Daily. Until next time, have a good day.